0: Well, joining me now is Chris Gardner, president of the Independent Contractors and Businesses Association, his organization. uh, I've just put out a survey looking at the BC construction in 2024. He joins us now. Chris, welcome. Uh, Welcome, Jazz. Great to be on the show. I hope you're an optimist uh, for 2024. Give me a sense of what your survey uh, is telling you uh, as we head into this new year.
1: Well, the the top line number that's that I found very interesting and, and a little surprising is that eighty seven percent of construction contractors, mm-hmm. uh, as they look forward to twenty twenty four, are saying are telling us that it will be as busy or busier than last year, and if you just think about all of the uncertainty that we're seeing globally. Mm-hmm and then all the challenges domestically. I mean, really, since the COVID-19 global pandemic, mm-hmm. we've sort of rolled from one crisis to another. We had uh, the pandemic, then we had supply chain shocks, then we had inflation, and then we had record interest rates uh, to deal with all of that. Um, but despite that, construction has been robust and resilient. And so there's more optimism in the sector than I would have thought, and that's good news. It means there's opportunities, jobs, uh, and investments still happening.
0: But how much of that do you think is just based on, hey, interest rates are coming down this year, happy days are here again, potentially?
1: Well, well, you know, contractors are, I think there's a couple of things happening. One is a lot of contractors are, are looking at their order books and saying, we're still busy. Okay. And, and we've got, we've got orders and, and projects next year, the year after, and maybe going into 2026. Now, it's not every contractor. You can talk to, there was no doubt that as we went into 2023, uh, interest rates had rocketed up. Mm-hmm. Um, there were developers and builders saying, well, we're not sure we can make these projects are viable anymore. And they started to postpone and delay mm-hmm. uh, projects. And so some contractors were looking at their order books starting to shrink. But generally across the sector, the view is that there's a positive outlook. It remains resilient. And it's about 10% of our economy across the country and in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. So this is an important part of our economy. And in British Columbia, about 250,000 men and women work in construction. Those are... our People are supporting families and communities. Um, so we were pleasantly surprised by the number. I thought it was going to be lower, but uh, it's very high. Uh,
0: now, does this optimism actually speak to uh, wages for, for those in the construction sectors? Are they, is it still moving up in the right direction? Yes,
1: construction wages, even before the pandemic, construction wages were outpacing inflation. Okay. Uh, you know, at, at, before the pandemic, inflation was running around one and a half, two percent 2%. And construction wage increases were, you know, three, maybe three and a half percent. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we've gone into much higher levels of inflation since then, now that's coming down. But you still have, you know, a forecast this year of about a 5% increase in construction wages. Um, That's a healthy number. Um, And inflation's come down below that. So we're back to that trend where there are tremendous opportunities in construction. Wage growth, real wage growth can, is, is, happens, it, it's a characteristic of the sector. Um, so that means if you're a young person thinking about career opportunities, there are tremendous opportunities in construction. And the challenge is telling that story. Cause I know that, and we've talked about this before, if, yeah. if a young person is in high school, looking at making a career decision and says to a counselor, I want, to be, I want to start my own business. That counselor, nine times out of 10, is going to say, go to university and study business. What they should be saying is, go to a trade school, go to a technical school, learn a trade, get some experience, and become a contractor. Start your own business. Because when you drive by every construction site and you see those signs hanging outside on the fences, yeah. nine times out of 10, those signs are family names, Partners, individuals who are taking risk, building legacies. There's nothing more exciting than that. And we need to tell that story.
0: So what's know? keeping you up at night, though? I mean, it, these are good numbers from your survey. I uh, have it before me, which is great. And people are making more. I think it's 5% increase in salary they're expecting in 2024. Yeah. 6% in 2025, where uh, the average wage uh, before bonuses and benefits uh, or overtime will reach about $37.51, yeah. which is very healthy. Um, but what keeps you up at night? Because... You know, at the end of the day, we have a huge demand and need for housing, but we run into all these bottlenecks. Like what what, what are the top concerns that, that, that your survey told told what did it yeah, tell you?
1: You know, I I think the biggest concern that's been there for nearly a decade is the shortage of people. And that 80% of contractors saying they just can't find enough workers. And and it's surprising given the record levels of immigration. There's been a lot of talk about immigration, but the reality is if you look at the Number of permanent Im- immigrants that Canada let in last year, about 450,000, only 2% of them are going into construction. And that is not meeting the skills gap. We do a very poor job. We're failing. It's, we have a dismal track record of looking at our economy, understanding where the skills gaps are, and then going out and recruiting the people with those skills – to help us build our economy. And so we're not doing that and, and that's hurting us. Uh, so that's a big challenge. Um, and the second challenge would be red tape regulation, just getting projects approved, whether that's a road a bridge, a community center and housing. And you know, it's so bad that that Vancouver that if you compare the approval time for housing projects in Vancouver and Toronto mm-hmm. and this just came out it was uh, it was a study done by Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation it's four times as long in Vancouver and Toronto than in other major centers in um, Canada
0: or North America in
1: in Canada okay um, so that tells you you know we've got local governments that aren't approving Uh, projects fast enough. We've got local governments layering on fees. Uh, And then we've got a lot of finger-pointing between the federal government, the province, City Hall saying, you're not doing enough, you're downloading this. But at the end of the day, um, if if you take the view that we are in, that, that affordability, the Bank of Canada's Housing Affordability Index is the worst it's been since 1982. So if we, if we, everyone accepts the fact that we're in the middle of a crisis, but we don't have the three levels of government really working together and sitting down and trying to work with the private sector, as if it was the crisis that it really is, and so that is that is a big
0: part of the problem. Uh, I'm very curious. Uh Without getting to the specifics of the legislation, or you can if you want, but the the, the provincial housing legislation that was introduced, many have called it very far-reaching uh, and could have a significant impact on housing, a positive impact over the longer term. It's a generational housing uh, legislation, some would argue. But then the rubber hits the road on some of the issues that you you've talked about, on uh, regards to labor, in regards to construction, in regards to uh, just costs, in regards to. Of similar things, it's just sewer pipes and getting them in and all those types of things. Your overall thoughts on this housing legislation, when you heard it, what went through your mind? Because you, you have to deal with the nitty gritty of the labor, the, yeah. the cause, all that stuff. Um, is this actually doable beyond just the aspirational nature of the, the document, the legislation? Can we actually deliver on this stuff in your mind?
1: I I think where we are is that elected officials at all three levels of government have finally realized that the public is crying out for action and that there are families and young families who are looking – who can't get into the housing market. So finally the light goes off. And then now what's happening is this this rapid-fire response. Some of the things – may be effective, we'll have to wait and see. But some of the things are actually not gonna do make one iota difference. And I'll I'll just point out a few things that are not gonna be helpful. One is the federal government saying they're gonna come up with common designs. For a whole bunch of different housing options, and that uh, make them available to builders. So I can tell you right now, that the challenge we have in getting projects permanent approved aren't aren't because you know it's taking too long to design the home. Um, that is not it's not practical. It's not going to work. It's a waste of time and money. Um, so other things could be helpful. So the idea that we're going to uh, try and fast track and and um, and. And, you know, in third reading in, in municipalities, mm-hmm. do away with the public hearing process. And I have been to a lot of public hearings uh, to speak on behalf of housing projects, community facilities. And I can tell you that nine times out of 10, and, and, and you know, surveys will show this, everybody accepts density and change and growth, except if it's in their neighborhood. And as soon as it's in their neighborhood, (laughs) then all of a sudden it's traffic, it's noise, it's views, it's character of the neighborhood. And the reality is if you live in a city, cities are dynamic, uh, dynamic places to live. Density is just a natural part of living in a city. If you don't accept density in a city, well, where are you going to have density? Um, So I I think some of those initiatives uh, will be helpful. I I think the flippant response that sometimes you hear elected officials say, well, the private sector isn't meeting uh, uh, the the demand. So we're just going to magically, the government's going to take control and start building housing. Well, that's not going to work. And that's, that's just reflects a lack of understanding of what's really happening in the marketplace. And what's really happening is the private sector is hamstrung by the costs, the fees, and the rules and regulations that prevent them from building and and getting projects approved in a timely fashion. Uh,
0: You were mentioning uh, you were in Australia during the holidays. Now, different country, uh, different part of the world, but many ways very similar to in population in the type of government that they have uh, and probably culturally uh, I would argue to a certain degree very similar to Canada. Uh, How are they doing? I'm very curious in regards to sort of what you saw there.
1: Well, it was interesting because I picked up the, uh, the local paper, the Sydney Morning Herald, a number of times and flipped through it. And, and what struck me was how similar the challenges that Australia and Canada are facing. And I didn't feel very far from home, even though it's a long way away, yeah. uh, when I started flipping through the paper. And, and so articles on the challenges dealing with um, the sh- the affordability in housing. Mm-hmm. The lead editorial was we've got to build more supply, and it's complicated, and there's not w- a one size fits all solution. So I thought you know they're they're grappling with the same the same challenges, concerns about um, issues related to the uh, the number of international students who are studying in Australia, and and a, and a focus there on not the the mainstream universities, but more the private colleges and whether students are being exploited Mm -hmm. uh, just to to pay high tuition fees. Um, So that, again, is very similar types of issues we're dealing with here. Um, And then there was a whole range of discussion on Indigenous engagement and reconciliation. Hmm. And they just had a referendum uh, in, in October of last year uh, uh, around giving Indigenous communities uh, more of a say in 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 the national parliament, so the 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 issue set very similar to uh, to Canada's.
0: But is it is it not true in Australia? They've they've talked about cutting back on immigration and international students, though, because of
1: yes, they're 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 taking the very housing strong challenges. action. Yeah, they're partly because of housing, partly because of the the what they what they're saying is that the. The, the the private colleges in some cases that aren't actually training people the way they should be mm-hmm. uh, and they're just exploiting people they're going to put a stop to that they're taking very strong action and in terms of immigration they're looking at uh, tamping down on the, the number of immigrants coming to the country one article I read that their goal the goal of the federal government is to cut that in half by 2025 um, and and that that's a you know here we've got a federal government that's starting to indicate that they are looking at, you know, maybe curtailing the number of international student visas. We have nearly one million international students studying in canada that's a big number and so for the mainstream universities like you look at ubc go google the ubc scott solder school of business canadian pays fifty eight hundred dollars a year for first year tuition international student pays fifty eight thousand dollars now do i think that international students we we need international students do i think they should be paying 10 times as much they should be paying more but to me it seems that it's a cash grab by universities